the uh, book of Acts. And uh, I think we'll go ahead and read this uh, first uh, section and try to introduce the book out of what he says. So would somebody read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 5? The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay. Now, he makes reference here to the first account he composed. Now, what was that? The Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Luke had written the first account to whom? Theophilus, and that's who he's dedicating this second book to as well. So these are two companion volumes. Both Luke and Acts pretty much fill up a papyrus role. They are the two longest books in the New Testament. And it's probably, uh, it's probably true that Luke made the fullest possible use of his space. He put everything you could get into one papyrus roll. So he's selective about what he writes. He chooses the things that he's able to, uh, to find uh, or, or that, that contribute to his purposes uh, out of this. So he, he makes reference to the first account. Now the first account was about what? All that Jesus began to do and teach. Now what would that imply this one's about? Yes. The first one's about what he began to do and teach. This is this one's about what he continues to do and teach through the apostles. So these both deal with what Jesus is doing and teaching. The beginning of that in Jesus' personal ministry, the continuation of that through the apostles. Uh and so, um, the, the first account was about everything Jesus began to do and teach until what point? Yes, until he went back up to heaven, basically. Um, that's kind of the limit of the first account. You look at Luke, what's the last thing Luke tells about? This, yeah, good, good guess. Uh, in Luke uh, 24, uh, you've got the uh, things Jesus did when he was raised, and the last thing that it tells about in verse 50 and following was him going up uh, uh, from there, departed from there, carried up into heaven. They were worshiping him and were continually in the temple praising God. Wow, we may have a crowd after all. Can you say we'll have a double quorum now? So. Yeah, that's right. I have a quora, not just a quora. There we go. How about that? Quorum should be the singular of something, anyway. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't it? Yep. So. Quorum, quorum. 
datum and data. Whatever you say. Fire's chairs? Yeah. You want to go get me some more water? Sure. The clean I had a test at the hospital. More ice and more water. I had a test today and the doctor said, drink, drink, drink. So I thought better. Jeremy was going to come, but uh, he had something come up last minute. And he Staying up. Ryan Fugh is going to come, but apparently his car broke down. Unless he's got it fixed right quick. Did you get in? <laughs> come in. Hello. Hey. Alright, we're just starting the book of Acts. We're looking at the first uh, five verses. And, uh, so... He makes reference to the first account, Luke. That covers what Jesus began to do and teach until the ascension. Now, Acts is going to tell what the apostles do by the Holy Spirit. Because before he was taken up, Jesus gave orders to them, and they're going to continue his work. Now, in verse 3, between Jesus' death and uh, and uh, ascension, what did he do? Presented himself alive. Yes. In what way? Convincing proofs. Convincing proofs. What was so convincing about the proofs that Jesus was still alive? Or that he'd been raised from the dead? Well, the, those who he, he presented himself to were not limited in number to just a handful. There were quite a few people. What made it so obvious that he was alive? He ate. He ate. He was there. They saw him. They heard him. They could touch him. You know, he did eat and so forth and so on. I mean, he was really there. What would it take to prove somebody's alive? You know, if you see them, hear them, touch them, you know, and all that kind of, I think that probably is a pretty good indication. Those are pretty good proofs, as opposed to maybe just some sort of a vision or something like that. Yeah, they're trying to mess you up. Really. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did it, didn't they? They messed us all up. I love it. Yeah, they switched well, some the door. Some of us got more confused than that. I told you it was me. What I said, too. I didn't remember it opening that way. Yeah, it never did for 21 years until now. Big change. Sorry, did you want to go Third or fourth. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have very many people here when we started, so. We have literally doubled. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Um... So Jesus, you know, he present he shows himself to be alive by convincing proofs for how long? Forty days. Forty days. Now, um, that's a long enough time to check it out. You know, he's, he appeared to some people various times during that time. They had some doubts about it. Go back, they gone back and touched him again. You know, <laughs> really feel like he's alive. You know, and uh, listen to him again and whatever. Um, the forty days kind of fits into the overall time frame. Jesus was crucified at what time? Passover. Passover. 
And Acts 2 will be when? Pentecost. And how many days were there between Passover and Pentecost? Fifty. Fifty. If he was uh, between resurrection and the ascension, there was forty. Then about how many were there between the ascension and Pentecost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nine or ten, eight or nine or ten, or whatever. So uh, that's kind of the time frame that we're looking at. Now, one of the things that I want us to look at, uh, and that I continue trying to puzzle over in Acts, is what's Acts all about? I mean, what's the purpose behind writing it? You know, I used to read books like Acts, and it'd be basically like kind of a series of events. You know, this happened, this happened, this happened, and not really much theme or purpose to it. But I don't think we ought to read these books just kind of like random stories spliced together. It seems to me like there is probably more purpose behind Luke's selection of the material that he presents and the way he presents it than just to tell some random stories he happened to find out about. So I'm thinking, okay, what is the real point? What's kind of the themes that we can look for? Well, I think that I've come up with some. See what you think. In verse 3, he, uh, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now look at the very last of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, verse 31. That's the last verse of Acts. Preaching, guess what? The kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now, if he starts by telling them about the kingdom of God and he ends in the very last verse with the preaching of the kingdom of God, that initially at least makes me think maybe that's one of the main themes in this book. I believe the book was written to show how the kingdom of God advances and triumphs. Now, when you say the kingdom of God, what does the word kingdom mean in that sense? And be careful. (laughs) An area or dominion that a king rules over? Not primarily in the Bible. Yes, it, in the Bible, the term mostly refers to the rule, dominion, reign itself. The kingly governing power and authority. So I think that's what we ought to think about, is God is acting in his kingly power. He's exercising his dominion. And this is a book, Acts is a book a lot like an Old Testament book, that shows God's kingdom advancing and conquering. What book's like that in the Old Testament? Judges. Joshua. Yeah. This is another conquest narrative. You know, just as in the book of Joshua, the land was conquered, so here, people and territories are being conquered by God's kingly power for the gospel. So I think a large part of what we're seeing in this book is the triumph of God's reign. And did you notice the very last word of the book of Acts? Unhindered. 
That's not a usual word. How many times did you read the word unhindered in the Bible? That's a word that makes you stop and take notice. And it's the very last word of the book. God's reign is triumphing over all obstacles. It is progressing unhindered. This book shows us how God's power overcomes every barrier Satan throws against it. And so we end the book unhindered as the kingdom goes forth. I think that's a good part of what this is about. But let me give you a second theme. If you look at verse 1, he mentions about what Jesus began to do and teach. This would then be what is continuing to be done and taught by the Holy by the, by the apostles through the Holy Spirit. And you look at 2831 again, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Seems to me like a secondary theme is the teaching. Now, I think that's connected. How is the kingdom of God spread? Exactly. Do you spread the kingdom of God with uh, bombs and, you know, soldiers and guns? You spread it with teaching. So I think those two themes are connected. Acts is very much a book of teaching. So was Luke. Because teaching is kind of like the weapon by which the gospel triumphs and is spread. So I think you can look for those things as kind of themes throughout this book. Now there's a couple more things that I think we ought to add to the mix here. Though though this may not be quite as prevalent later on in the book, in the first chapter, there is much emphasis on the Holy Spirit. In verse 1, verse 5, verse 8, and verse 16. And in a number of passages later on in the book, maybe not quite that concentration, you've got the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Because I believe the Holy Spirit was empowering the apostles to teach and to conquer for Christ's kingdom. And so this is not a book where men are acting on their own. This is a book where the Spirit, as, as he says, as he gathered them together in verses 4 and 5, and told them to wait in Jerusalem to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the weapon. That's going to be the resources that they're going to use to triumph with the gospel. Um, And, obviously, this is a book dealing with what the apostles do. And uh, so, so they're going to be the key players in this conquest of God's kingly power and rule. If you've read the book of Acts, one apostle dominates the first half of the book. Who's that? And another, the last half, who's that? And you'll see a number of fascinating parallels between the first and the last half, between the work of Peter and Paul. So, that's uh, that's really what I want to say about the theme of the book, and uh, I guess pretty much what I want to say about the first five verses. What comments and thoughts do you have? Um, Acts 14, 27, um, when Paul got back from his first journey, it said that they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So, it seems to be a lot of, about God working through people and what the Spirit's able to do. Amen. Absolutely. <clears throat>
Other comments? Somebody uh, suggested that uh, in Acts you see a defense for Christianity and a demonstration of the divine origin of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then they concluded by saying a success story. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Definitely is that. I've heard some people say before that um, Acts may have been, uh, Luke may have rose a secondary purpose for the defense of Paul um, whenever he was arrested. Is that a possibility or may not since it appears that this is written to the same person as Luke? I don't think it's for the defense of Paul. I think Paul's trial speeches promote and defend the gospel and spread it. I don't think Paul's being defended. I think Paul's defending the gospel and spreading the gospel. That's what I would say. But we can, you know, I make some of these theme concepts are definitely works in progress for me. You know, as I keep going with this, I may modify, you know, my thinking somewhat. So I'll have to turn that to uh, silent. Um, Notice something else. In verse 2, it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave orders to the apostles, and then that's the same Holy Spirit that's going to, in verse 5 and verse 8, equip them for their work. So, they're going to have the same resource, essentially, that Jesus did. And you might also connect this with John 14 to 16, where he promises the Spirit to the apostles to help them with their work. You might also connect it with a number of Old Testament passages that connect the uh, Spirit with the outpouring of the blessings in Christ. Other comments through verse 5? Were Luke and Acts written at about the same time? It's sort of, I mean, it's, you can think of it as two volumes. I don't think they were probably written that far apart, though it's probably not real easy to determine when it was written. But my guess is they were sequels not written that far apart. You've got a debate about when Acts was written, period. Um, while I'm probably in the minority, I tend to think that Acts was written while Paul was still in prison, and that's why we sort of leave him there with no real definitive conclusion about what happens to him at the end of Acts. Seems to me like if Paul had been let out, or if he'd been you know, executed or something, the book would have gone ahead and told that. Now, a lot of people don't agree with that, but that's what I think. Other comments? Doesn't this phrase in verse 3, convincing proofs, isn't that used kind of as a legal term in that day? Mm-hmm. Sort of like our, how we would say, um, beyond all reasonable doubt. Yes, something that would convince the skeptic, is what I have in my notes. And this is the only passage in the New Testament where that uh, term is found. First thing that comes to mind would probably be uh, miracles. But I don't know if that would have been any of the convincing proofs. <laughs> I think the convincing proofs are probably more what he did by presenting himself alive. Right. We, we often think of the miracles as proof of the message, and that, I think, carries over when you see that term. That's just the first thing that pops yes. into mind. And, and certainly they were. I just don't think those are the proofs here, but certainly they were. Right. Yeah. Was Theophilus a real person or not? Well, all I know about Theophilus is that Luke and Acts were dedicated to him. The name itself means lover of God. 
There are those who think Theophilus was just kind of a code name for writing this to lovers of God. Maybe, but I don't have any particular reason not to think it was just the patron of the book. Or at least the recipient of the book. And does the, the, the reason for the writing of Luke was so that Theophilus would, may know the exact truth about the things we have been taught. So does that sort of also carry over into Acts? I don't know. I don't know what Theophilus' relationship was to some of these things in Acts. He may have been a participant in some of that. So I don't know how much that's true in, in Acts. Good question. I mean, I'm assuming that Luke, at least at some points, did not do the same sort of research for Acts that he did for Luke. Because by the we sections, I think Luke was actually a participant in some of this. So this is a little bit different for him than writing Luke about past history that he's researched and writing so that somebody could know exactly what the truth was about. Other comments and questions? All right, six to eight. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Lord has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, I don't have a real strong view on verse 6. This is a debated verse among brethren, especially. Were, did the apostles have the correct concept of the kingdom when they asked this question? Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And I don't know the answer for, to that for sure. Uh, were they thinking in terms of a physical, material, political kingdom still that they were expecting Jesus to bring into being soon? Um, maybe. Did they have a spiritual view of the kingdom where we were just asking, is this the time when your kingship is going to begin to, to act? Maybe. You know, I don't really know. Um... Somebody wants to uh, offer an opinion about that. I'll listen. I would have. I would have hoped they would have said it more like you did in the latter part, if that's what they meant. The words are curious. That if they meant, you know, beginning your king, your spiritual kingship. I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't line up as well for me. It's 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 kind of awkward language for me that way. Maybe, maybe not. For us, maybe hearing restore the kingdom to Israel sounds awkward. But I'm not sure it should. I'm not, I'm not strongly on the page that they had the right concept. But, but, you know, I think what you see in, say, Amos 9, quoted in Acts 15, it's the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David that's fallen. Really, you do have the idea of the kingship coming back to God's people back to the lineage of David after a long hiatus to fulfill that promise. So I think you could easily use that language and mean something correct. 
I'm just not sure, given their background and the setting and so forth, if they did. You know, you would think certainly from the Gospels they wouldn't be thinking straight about that. You do have the fact that Jesus had taught them a lot. Even Luke 24 mentions, you know, that. So, I don't know. I think if I had to stake my life on it, I would prefer saying they still had a misconception. But I might be wrong. But if they did have a misconception, wouldn't Jesus try and correct that instead of just saying, you know, it's not for you to know the times that God has said? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't Jesus try and straighten that view more? I don't know whether he would or not. Are there are there times when he didn't? I think so. There's so when they asked to sit at his right and left hand, yeah. he didn't answer. The, he didn't say, you got it all wrong, there's not going to be a right and left hand. He, he said... Do you know what, I mean, he said, yeah. you're not able to drink the cup, or are you? Yeah, exactly. I think there I are times. I think he was real clear in that. Yeah, I, I don't think Jesus, you know, at times corrected people's misconceptions. So I think there's not much to go on from that, in my view. But but I, I think you can make a case either way. I just don't know. And I'm not sure it makes a lot of difference when it's all said and done. Whatever they were thinking is not as important as what Jesus says. And what he says back is, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, God is the one who keeps these matters to himself. And it's really not, it's not up to you to find out or to know what the timing is. You know, sometimes we have an excessive curiosity about things God has just not chosen to reveal to us. And, and so if he hadn't chosen to reveal them, then we ought to accept that. And what he does is to shift their thinking from kind of the speculation about the timing to what they need to be doing right now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even, even to the remotest part of the earth. Instead of, you know, this speculative, you know, wondering this, wondering that, they've got a job to do, and they really need to focus on that job. And that's really what he wants them to concentrate on. And their job will be to do what? Be witnesses. They are to be witnesses. That is their business. Now, to be witnesses, what are they going to be equipped with? Power that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's going to give them the ability to be witnesses of Christ, to report accurately what they'd seen and heard, and where are they going to be witnesses? Jerusalem first, that's chapters 1 through 7. Then all Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 8 through 12. And then the remotest part of the earth, that's chapters 13 to 28. So I see this as the table of contents. And I also see this as a very interesting lesson. Where are they supposed to start? Where they are. are. They're in Jerusalem. You ever know anybody who wants to go somewhere to preach the gospel? (laughs) Well, are they preaching it where they are? If you don't preach it where you are, why would you want to go somewhere and preach it? You know, we talk about Sewell Hall and his leadership camps in in Alabama, you know, has people coming in every day talking about foreign evangelism that have been other places, and Sewell talks a lot about that. He's very motivated about that. But he makes the point sometimes, and other speakers make the point sometimes, I think, very validly. 
There is nothing about going to a foreign country that speaks a different language and has a different different culture that's going to suddenly make you a wonderful preacher and teacher if you weren't doing any of that where you are. Why are only foreign people supposed to be taught? You know, if you really have a passion for spreading the gospel, why not spread it today to your neighbor? Now, if you are spreading it to those people you're around where you're at, then probably you'll do fine if you go somewhere else and spread it. And that's what he, that's how this continues. You know, begin where they are, but are they supposed to just stay in Jerusalem and that's it? No. It's supposed to move out from Jerusalem, then to all Judea and Samaria, and then even to the remotest part of the earth. They are not to stay in Jerusalem and just wait for the world to flow in. You know, sometimes we're like that. You know, we, we, we have one of the other errors. Sometimes we don't want to start where we are. We just want to go somewhere, place far away, to fairyland or whatever, and that's where we'll preach. Or sometimes we sink our roots in, and I'm going to stay right here, and, and I, I hope they come. Well, no, we need to be taking it out from Jerusalem. You know, we don't wait for them to come. We spread it. Uh, so, I like the Jesus's you know, uh, statements here, because I think on both sides we have something to learn. Comments and questions? Back to the previous question. If they can, if they are continuing to have trouble with the nature of the kingdom, I don't think you see it playing out through the rest of the accounts written in this book. I agree with that. So that's... Unless the Holy Spirit help them and yeah. correct their misconceptions. I think that's probably the normal view of those who think this was a misconception in the question that the Holy Spirit then clarified it for them. I mean, they didn't get it. If, if they didn't have it by now, they didn't get it over a period of time, but then they do. Right, exactly. Yes. So this gives them, you know, basically their task. The scope of their task, the resources for their task, and what they're supposed to do. Kind of their marching orders in this conquest. Other comments and thoughts through eight? Nine through eleven. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Alright, so this is a rather simple account of a very amazing thing. It's amazing the, just the calmness of Bible writers as they write about these things. Um, basically, Jesus going up to heaven here. Um, what do you think is particularly being emphasized uh, in verse, uh, in these verses? Seeing it? Yes. There's great stress on the visual aspect of this. What what visual words do you see in this account? Sight. Sight in Look, nine. Looking. Looking on in nine. Gazing. Gazing intently in ten. Looking in. Looking in eleven. 
watched in 11. That's a lot of visual terms for three verses, and not very long verses. They saw this happen. Now, what's their role supposed to be? Witnesses. What is a witness? Witness. They witness what they saw. So we're already seeing that they're being well qualified for this. Uh, but they stand there looking up into the sky where Jesus has gone, and these two men in white clothing, I take it that these are angels, rebuke them. For what? Staring up the sky. <laughs> yeah. Don't I mean, to do. <laughs> yes, I think that's the point. Sometimes we do too much just looking up and, wow. Well, they've got a role to fulfill. They've got something to do. Jesus will come back, but they don't need to be distracted by looking and waiting for him to come back. They need to get on with their job. Uh, so, he'll be back the same way you watched him go. Now, and uh, so that's when they return to Jerusalem and wait there like Jesus had told them to do. They follow the orders. Comments or questions through verse 11? that suggests that those folks who on occasion receive a word that they're supposed to sell all their stuff and stand in white robes on a hill somewhere and look for the second coming should possibly not be doing that? I think that's a fair deduction. <laughs> I mean, even if, they, even if that were an accurate thing, they've got work to do. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Is there any reason to think that verse 11, um, mentioning that he will come in the same way, is referring to anything other than the second coming? I think it's referring to the second coming. I don't know if there's anybody who thinks there's a reason to make it something else. You know, there's something else you might think about with this. Does this remind you of anything? It should. Elijah and Elisha? Yes. Now, what happened when Elijah went up to heaven? And, well, what happened when Elijah went up to heaven? <laughs> yeah. Do what? Did you say? He went in a chariot. Okay. That's how he went up. But what happened then? Elisha. Son was gazing. Well, Elisha was there. What happened with Elisha? He, got, he had a double portion of Elijah's spirit upon him. Yes. And he went out fulfilling Elijah's mission. But he wouldn't have had that power if he hadn't what? Seen it. He had to see him go up. So these men saw him go up. They received the Holy Spirit. And they are qualified and equipped to carry on his mission. So I wonder if there's not some background illusion to Elijah and Elisha, particularly with the emphasis on the Spirit, particularly with the emphasis on seeing him go. Of course, of course then they went looking for him. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't by Elisha's choice they were looking for him. Elisha tells him later it would have saved you a lot of trouble if you'd have listened to me in the first place. <laughs> Alright, anything else you want to say through verse 11? Twelve to 
14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Alright, so where do they go? Upstairs. In? Why is that significant? Because they were doing what they were told. That's it. They obey promptly and exactly. Jesus said, go and wait in Jerusalem. And they go and they wait in Jerusalem. And who all's there? Yes, the, 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 the 12, which at the moment means the 11. And? The women. Some women, like Mary, Jesus' mother, his brothers. Um, notice the first two in the list of the apostles. It's normal in Acts lists of names for the first ones to be more important. Not always, but I would suggest the act list in Acts 6 is another one that that's the case in. I has Peter and James. Oh, uh, okay. Well, mine has Peter and John and James, so it's interesting. Yeah, John is third on there must be a textual variant on that. I don't know. Mine is Peter, John, James, and Andrew. <laughs> what do, you, do you have the New King James? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody got the ESV or the NIV? Hey, you, you might look, but I, I, I don't know. That's interesting. Um, so there's some things about what they're doing here that I think are very significant. What would you say is significant about this section? Peter and John and James. Okay, thank you. What's significant about what they're doing? What were they doing? Just praying. Just praying? They're praying. Passing their time while praying. They're, They're together. You know, they're staying together and they're passing their time praying and from the next section studying the scriptures. Now, they, they need to wait there because that's exactly what Jesus told them to do. What do you do when you wait? What do we do when we wait? Well, they passed their waiting time doing some very productive things. I say they were studying the scriptures because it looks like Peter in his study of the scriptures comes to some conclusions in this next section that he's going to present for the uh, for the group. So if you pass your time with other Christians united in prayer and study, that's a good thing. That's what that, they're using that time productively. Alright. Um, questions and comments to verse 14. It's notable at the end of 14 that Jesus' brothers are included. Yes. Because prior to this, they were skeptics and they were almost, almost opponents. So... Some have suggested that the resurrection changed their lives. 
Could be. John 7 is where the brothers weren't believers. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we know Jesus appeared to James, at least his brother. But good point. The uh, upper room at one of the colleges I know of, uh, at Asbury College, uh, there's an upper room and people go there. Is that where they got the idea? Because it's a, a uh, room for prayer. Maybe. I suspect here it's just where they could congregate. I don't know that there's something that's special about it being upper as far as being better for praying. But it may be people have tried to copy that, I don't know. Because it's a winding stairways up there, and then you have to be quiet. And mm-hmm. If you've got some serious problems, then this is a place where they meet, and it's really neat. Mm-hmm. Very well known and everything. Right. Of course, it's a Christian college, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't know about that. So. Yeah, it's very nice. Other comments and thoughts? Right, look at this next section, which is really the rest of this chapter, 15 to 26. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it. And his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, very good. Peter's there. There's about 120 people there, actually, together. We didn't know that word for this. And um, Peter draws attention to the scriptures about Judas. And notice verse 16. What had Judas's function been? To be your guide to those who arrested Jesus. Yes. In other words, he showed them how to find Jesus when the crowds weren't present at night. Kind of showed them where Jesus was staying, hiding out, whatever you want to call that. So he was a guide to them. That's what his real function was. Now, who's telling this story about Judas who betrayed Jesus? The Peter who denied him. That's got an interesting thing, isn't it? And... uh, 
He said that he was counted among us and received a share in this ministry, but what happened to him? Yeah. Bought some real estate, had some issues, gastrointestinally. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard it put quite that way. <laughs> And uh, those issues uh, probably uh, were not uh, very beneficial to his health. Um, you know, here's a guy who puts money over the Messiah. In Luke and Acts, money's a big problem. And this shows you what happens to the guy who does that. I, you know, this is a little uh, too much information, perhaps. For some of us, you know, boys like verse 18, girls don't, you know. Can't you just imagine this guy falling headlong and bursting open in the middle and all his intestines gushing out? You know, the graphic nature of that might seem unnecessary. Why don't you just say he killed himself? Well, I think you'll want to see the graphic nature of what happens to somebody who sells Jesus out. I think that's why he tells us that. says he bought the, this field with his money. Now, apparently it was bought with his money by others. You know, sometimes you can build a house and not hammer a single nail in. So he buys the field, so to speak. It's the money he'd received that, that buys it. Evidently the place where he actually uh, died uh, was there. becomes kind of a macabre tourist attraction, I guess. Uh, this uh, field of blood. And... Uh, this all fits in with what Peter noticed from the Psalms, where, <clears throat> let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. Um, so, you know, a bad man has a desolate home. Verse 18 and 19. Uh, by the way, for whatever this is worth, I just have this in my notes. The, uh, all his intestines gushed out at the end of verse 18. For whatever this is worth, that's the very same verb as is used in 2.17. I will pour forth of my spirit. And the spirit gushes out upon us. Uh, so that's kind of curious. <clears throat> Questions through the first, or comments through the first half of verse 20. You kind of have a chiasm here. 18 and 19 are the event, and 20a is the scripture that applies to that. 20b, you have the scripture, and 21 to 26, the event that fulfills that. Because the scripture is, let another man take his office. So we talked about, you know, his homestead being desolate and no one dwelling in it. And now we talk about someone taking his office. Now, perhaps someone needed to take his office, not so much because he had died, but because he defected. He apostatized. He's no longer an apostle. Do we still have apostles today? Yes. Who are they? Same ones as back then? Same ones we always had. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Bartholomew, all those guys. It's like asking, does, does America still have founding fathers? Yes. Who are they? 
The same ones there have always been. You'll never have a new set of founding fathers. You know, you're never going to have a new set of apostolic witnesses. But one of them had actually fallen away and abandoned his post. And so we've got to have a replacement for him. And um, they, they had some pretty stringent qualifications on who could possibly fit that role. What do they have to have done? Men. Men? Who? Accompanied. J- Jesus. From the time of uh, John until until he was taken up. They have to be a witness of the resurrection. You couldn't possibly be an apostle if you weren't a witness of the resurrection. Which would make it really hard to have any modern apostles because you can't transmit being a witness of his resurrection from generation to generation. And there couldn't be apostolic succession anyway. They only found two even back then. (laughs) I'm not saying there couldn't have been some others, but there's two that they found that uh, fit the category. And so how are they going to decide which of the two wins? Why? It, it always reminds me of the choosing mechanism used in the Old Testament that I can never pronounce. The Urim and the whatever the other one is. It, that the way that it worked was you would, you know, reach in and grab one of them, and the one that you grabbed was the one that God wanted you to grab, and so it was his choice in that regard. I mean, some people could look at it as it's just a a thing of random chance, but there's not that much random chance in God's selection of anything. Alright, yes. Look, you've got these two men, Joseph and Matthias, and look at verse 24. They did what? They prayed. That's what you do when you have a decision to make. You pray. And they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, there's a number of things I want you to look at there. Who are they praying to? Can you be more specific? Normally, Lord refers to Christ. Look at verse 21. And look at verse 2. The apostles whom... Who had chosen? Jesus. Jesus. So I suspect he ch- Jesus chooses this one too. They're appealing to Lord Jesus to show which one he has chosen. They're his apostles. He needs to choose them to occupy this ministry and apostleship. Now, ministry means what in the Bible? What would be a synonym for ministry? Service. Service. Even apostle is considered a service, not a you know, high, glorious position. So, they're picking one for this service of apostleship. Leadership is always a way to serve. 
and um, to, uh, notice that he had speak, spoken of, in verse 17, Judas received his share in this ministry. Well, he's going to occupy this ministry. And then they draw lots. If I am not mistaken, the word for lots is the same as the word in 17 for share, or at least it's a related word. They're going to, to draw shares to find out who gets the share in this ministry. Um, and that's the way to allow the Lord to decide. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. By letting a random act decide, God will use and overrule that random act, and this is his way of picking out his own apostle. So they're letting him do that. Uh, by the way, I'm probably throwing too many things in at once, but in verse 25, I, I thought that description of Judas was intriguing. He turned aside to go to his own place. <laughs> Sounds like when you're on the road and you know you get close to your house and you turn aside and go to your own place. What's his own place he turned aside to go to? Turned aside from the ministry or the service as an apostle and went to his own to fulfill his own. <laughs> position or service or you know serve himself which service kind of the comparison between the two maybe but I suspect this is even stronger you know I suspect the place he has in mind here is hell that's where he belongs and I suspect that's what he's saying he turned aside to go to his own place he's not with us he's in his own place now <laughs> you know people go to their own place you go where you're suited when this life is over and uh, that's kind of a somber thought, but uh, what he did was pretty sad. So they draw the lots, and uh, who uh, who who is selected? Matthias. And so he's added to the eleven apostles, and now we've got the twelve again to begin their work as witnesses in Acts chapter two. Comments and questions to this point. Do we hear anything more about Matthias after this? No, nor do we, most of the others. I don't think we hear anything about any of the other 11, except for Peter, James, and John. Right? Right. <laughs> or Joseph Barsabbas Justice. That's true, yes. He was quite a well-named man, wasn't he? Well, Bar Sabbas would have been his last name. He was the son of Sabbas. Because Bar means son of. So a Bar name is always like, that's all like our Thompson, Johnson, Jackson, you know, the son of. Bar Sabbas is mentioned in Acts 15, 22. Uh, yeah. Or it says Bar Sabbas. I don't know if that would be the same one or not. I don't think so. It's along with the ones that took the uh, letter. Yeah, this was Judas called Bar Sabbas. In 1522. Yeah, it is a different name from Joseph. So I'm assuming, and maybe it's his brother. They're both the uh, son of Sabbath. So, so Bar Sabbath would have been a last name. Yeah, it would have meant son of Sabbath. Yeah. All the Bar names in the New Testament mean son of. 
Is the Philip in Acts 8 the Philip the Apostle? No. He's the Philip of the Seven. Seven. Yeah. Ryan Barbon. Mm-hmm. You're what? No, I'm just thinking of my name in the New Testament, Ryan Barbon. <laughs> Barbon. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps of the you know the old to the new you know carrying the 12 twelveness of the of Israel forward yes I think so I think 12 is the number that fits God's people and so it's appropriate to have 12 apostles as there were 12 tribes so then why do we see Paul being considered an apostle is that would that be different would he be considered more the apostle to the Gentiles and therefore not part of the 12 Exactly. Or yeah. And of course we talked last week all this question about the possibility of another category of apostles. You know, this is kind of the other side of that. Um, but yeah, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, Paul is never mentioned with a number, though, is he? He's not like... No, you never see him being the 13. Among the 12 or among the 13. No, or no, no. called an apostle. But also I think it's interesting, some uh, comparison with with Israel and the 12 tribes. They weren't always the same 12, but there was always 12. Sometimes there were 12 sons, there were 12 tribes. Sometimes they're listed later as 12 tribes, but not the same list as previous lists. And kind of with the apostles, there's 12 apostles, but the, the, uh, the actual content may change slightly. Other thoughts? Alright, chapter 2. I don't know, let's work on uh, 1 to 4. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house They were where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay. Now, the disciples have done what they were asked to do. They're waiting in Jerusalem, and praying, and leaving the next move up to God. And here you've got the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the Passover, probably on a Sunday. It was the day, among other things, that celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. And that's kind of appropriate here, since we are going to see the first fruits of the gospel harvest here in Acts chapter 2. And uh, they were all together in one place. And verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a debate about this. But the alls in those verses refer to what? Or who? People. 
Yeah. See, I would, I would argue, or I would lean towards it being uh, the 120. I think you're right. And I know a lot of people, they go, well, if you look back up in verse 26, it's the they goes to the 11 apostles right there. That's it. But the all, I think, goes to more than just the 11 apostles. I suspect here the, the presence of the word all is an indication that this was not just limited to the 11 or the 12, that it, it refers to the 120. Now, there's clearly a special role for the apostles, and we'll see that consistently in these first five chapters in Acts. So I won't be dogmatic about this, I just think the presence of the word all there needs to be acknowledged, and probably it's everybody up in that upper room that actually receives the Holy Spirit. You can do with that what you want to. Anybody want to engage me in a debate on that at the moment? If you look back in verse 14, in verse 13 it lists all these people, and in verse 14 it adds more people. It says, they, these all were one mind, were continually devoted. They were all together in that area too. So right. Just to kind of... Yes. Throw more support that way, since I like that one. Yes, I, I think that's the case, even though I know brethren don't care for that. Um, it just seems to me like we have a hard time accounting for the word all. It's kind of superfluous if it didn't mean all the ones who were up there. But the promise of the Holy Spirit was made to the eleven. Yes, that's true. That's the end of Luke and again first part of Acts 1. Yes, I agree. Yeah, but you also see people besides the apostles having the Holy Spirit. Yes. So just because the promise was just made to the apostles doesn't mean that the others couldn't have had it. I think what you see is the Holy Spirit came on a large number. The apostles received a special role from that that the others didn't. I mean, look at it this way. I believe Cornelius and his family received the Holy Spirit the same way the apostles did. Did that make Cornelius and his family apostles? Or did it make them, you know, some special people in the foundation of the church? So I'd argue that the 108, you know, were no different than Cornelius and his family. They received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit but they didn't have the special role God had designated the apostles for. It's not a big issue, it's just being honest with the word all there. So, back in verse 22, it talks about they had to, the, these, these men who accompanied us had to be there from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. Yes. So, there were other people other than just the Eleven standing there on the mount, witnessing the ascension. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, so I is think. that well? Okay. The pro the promise of the Holy Spirit. Or at least until the day that he was taken up. I don't know. I mean, you might not be able to prove that from that. But I guess the promise of the Holy Spirit came not on not at the day of ascension, but before in the the supper discourse and. John 14, 15, 16-ish. Yeah, I mean, you've got in uh, here in Acts 1-2, he's given order to the apostles, and he gathers them together in verse 4 and commands them not to leave and so forth. I think all you really know for sure was there was the apostles. Why could they all not refer to just the apostles? 
because he says, I mean, if we're talking about 12 apostles, and then it turns around and says, and they were all together. If, if we're talking about everybody in this room, and we were all together. All would seem to be kind of an unnecessary word. You could say, and they were together. When you add all, what difference does that make to the phrase? Why don't you just say they were together? They were together in one yeah. The other thing is, and then it goes on to verse 4, they all were filled and began to speak. Mm-hmm. But in verse 7, all those that were speaking were Galileans. Mm-hmm. So that means that everyone that was in the room had to have been a Galilean. And then Peter goes on to take his stand with the eleven and says that these men are not drunk. There were also women. Well, I guess we don't know that from this because that was a different group. Yeah, certainly the apostles took the lead and the apostles were the main spokesmen. Um, So there's no doubt about that and you're going to see that consistently. Not only in what you pointed out, but even a little later on in like 242, the apostles' teaching, uh, 243, the wonders and signs through the apostles. It's going to be a lot of emphasis on the role of the apostles, not on the role of the 120. Uh, so, if the 120, as I think, received the Holy Spirit at this point, it did not equip them to do the same role as the apostles had, which was the leadership role in the church. Which may be part of the reason why in verse in 214, Peter took his stand with the eleven so that everyone wasn't looking at this whole group of people anymore. They're just looking at these twelve right. men standing up. Right. That certainly clarifies at that point we do not have all 120 standing up there preaching to them. And they, they in two seven that they would possibly all it talks about all these who are speaking being Galileans. Well we have all of the apostles, we have the women who were probably the women, either their wives or women who were supporting them from Galilee, Mary and her other sons would have been from Galilee as well. So Perhaps, although I think in 270 may be talking about just the apostles. Okay. Yeah. So the others were just in the right place at the right time. <laughs> they well, just got the tongues of fire. They were, <laughs> they were in the place Jesus had said to be. He told people to wait in Jerusalem, and they've been there. So they receive, they receive that blessing by obeying the Lord's orders. And as I say, it's not going to be a critical point, I don't think. Uh, it's just a point of what, for me, is uh, is honesty with the word all. But uh, but you know, most people disagree with me, so fine for me if you do too. A notice. Something was heard, verse 2, and seen, verse 3. What did they hear? Noise. A noise like? Wind, Wind, which is interesting. You know what the word wind is in the Bible. Same word as spirit. Yeah. So that's an appropriate noise to hear when the spirit's being poured out. And what did they see? Tons of fire. Yes. And fire is often a symbol of God's presence, sometimes even of God's judgment. Uh, So, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a really common connection. Start looking for the verb fill and the noun Holy Spirit together uh, a lot in the book of Acts. And uh, they began to speak with other tongues 
Um, which I have, I don't see any reason to assume these tongues were anything other than real languages. He's going to emphasize later on the uh, ethnicity of the various people who were hearing them in their own language. So I'm assuming that they spoke in real languages. And as he goes on, that they did that as well. Now, what that must mean is not that one guy spoke in, you know, 20 different languages. That would be ventriloquism, you know, uh, gone, gone to seed or something. I mean, do that. Uh, or not that, as some people say, it was a miracle of hearing. Because it wasn't the audience that received the Holy Spirit. It was the 120 and then the 12 particularly. Um, it, this was this was them speaking, but I'm assuming either you know one apostle over here was speaking in one language, one apostle over there was speaking in another language, or maybe it was successive. One apostle gives a, a brief statement in one language, and another one in another, another one in another. You know, I don't think you ought to imagine that Peter preaches and suddenly his voice is divided into a bunch of different languages. And I would say this also. The gift of tongues was not primarily to aid communication. They could all speak Greek. They were all there in the same city getting along fine. This was a sign. This was proof that the Holy Spirit was brought down. It wasn't so much so that they could get the message out in these languages. What about the reference to tongues made later in uh, translating? Having somebody translate the tongues, what would you say? If nobody knows the language, then it has to be translated to make sense. <laughs> That's what I would say. Questions and comments? Alright, well, I'm going to stop there, because if I go any farther, I'll probably, we'll probably get into another... Uh, who knows what? But that was really good. We, we got a lot done uh, tonight. And uh, we will uh, we'll look at this as being uh, basically picking up in chapter 2, verse 5. And uh, we'll work a little bit more on what was done there on the day of Pentecost and then on Peter's sermon, which is fascinating. If you're going to study ahead on this, here's what you might look at. You might look at Joel 2, the prophecy there, and see if you can correlate that with Peter's sermon. Particularly the last verse of Joel's prophecy with what Peter tells the audience to do. Yeah. Alright. Very good.